I keep thinking that Alexander Hamilton would be saying, let's go, let's move, let's move along here. Let's use everything we can to break this virus. Hi, and welcome to Conversations Beneath the Cupola, a Gettysburg College podcast. I'm Bob Giuliano, president of the college and your host. As the global outbreak of COVID-19 continues to progress, we are all trying to make sense of the significant changes that have been made to the way we live. During this time, we are using this podcast to explore the uncertainty that surrounds some of these changes with the guidance and expertise of Gettysburg faculty. Today, we are joined by Bruce Larson, chair and professor of political science at the college. A specialist in American political institutions and processes, he teaches and conducts researches on a variety of topics, including the U.S. Congress, political parties, and elections. Bruce will use this background to help us make sense of how the COVID-19 outbreak has and will continue to impact ongoing primary elections across the country, how the administration's response to the health care crisis today may affect the presidential election in November, and so much more. So Bruce, over the past couple of weeks, I've really had the privilege of interviewing a couple of your and my colleagues on the faculty. How do you evaluate this in the political side? Is there any analog to this that we should be having in mind? Uh, any lessons that we ought to be um, uh, taking from this? I'm mindful of yesterday's events in Wisconsin where people had to choose between um, voting in their well-being. How do we make sense of this from a political angle uh, looking back over time? Well, I think, um, Bob, the, the, the combination here of several things, right, of severe economic fallout, of an ongoing presidential campaign in which, as you point out, it's a health risk to show up at the polls, and the uncertainty about how long the closures will last make this context fairly unique in American politi political history. I think I was thinking about history a little bit, and we, we, we'll have to get you know uh, some historians in on this, but maybe the closest historical analog, at least absent the economic fallout, was the flu pan pandemic of, of 1918 in the United States, which, by the way, killed 675,000 Americans. Which is um, staggering. You think about that as a percentage of the population? Absolutely, which was much smaller then. So state and local governments still managed to coordinate and hold the 1918 midterm elections. It was a midterm elections. Uh, and some, some states did some innovative things. Um, Nebraska, for example, lifted the statewide ban on public gatherings five days before the elections. So candidates could go out and campaign. Um, and I, my understanding was there were some negative health consequences of that as well. Um, turnout was really low in 1918, though, even for a midterm election. So, uh, and I'll note then the stakes were high, right? We were, World War I was winding down. Uh, Woodrow Wilson's Democrats uh, were trying to fight to hold on to their majorities in Congress. And by the way, they failed. Republicans ended up winning um, control of both chambers back for the first time in a decade. So you uh, note that the uh, Wilson didn't succeed. That sort of bears on a question um, that's been on my mind. And that is, how do we think about the legitimacy of a democratic process when events like this take place and necessarily circumscribe even now, the capacity of candidates to have the sort of attention that they would otherwise have to talk to the American public about their ideas. You know, my assumption is 
that higher voter turnout leads to more democratic legitimacy. You want public engagement in these big questions. And it becomes, at least for me, problematic when people do need to make a choice between risking their health um, and, and, and showing up at the polls. And so I think there are, there are some questions of legitimacy here. Let me point out too that, and this of course um, isn't because of politics, but so far the pandemic seems to have had a greater effect on blue states not because they're blue states, but because blue states tend to be more urban and densely populated. And so that, that also um, you know, can, can, can play into some of these questions of legitimacy as well. So uh, we'll have to see. I mean, it's, it's not something, it's not something we want to play with, right? People wanna feel like elections were won uh, on an even playing field and, and fairly and squarely. And if, and if people don't feel like um, they can uh, come out to vote without risking health, that I think poses problems. So you mentioned that uh, Nebraska opened five days early to let candidates um, um, campaign, but it had negative health consequences. So you've seen states today react in very different ways to the challenges associated with running elections. Some states have deferred. Uh, Wisconsin went ahead. The governor was trying to think about whether there were alternative means of conducting an election. Um, have you seen examples of alternative means other than in-person voting um, happen on a large scale? Um, another way perhaps of asking this question is how practical is it that the government in short notice could stand up a new means of conducting an election that would still be fair and that wouldn't have problems of fraud or other voter issues that may have the same effect of undermining legitimacy? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, let me say first, there are indeed effective alternatives to in-person voting, and namely that's mail-in balloting. Um, currently, there are actually three states, Oregon and Washington State and Colorado, where voting is conducted exclusively by mail. That's the, that's the way it occurs. And actually, for most of California, most precincts in California, that is true as well. And so this already exists. Actually, my understanding of Oregon is that it, it was, uh, it has been using in-person, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, mail-in balloting since 1998. So it's not even necessarily a new thing. I confess I did not know that. That's a really interesting fact. Yeah. And so but but as you point out, there are there are logistical and actually political difficulties um, for many states to implement mail-in voting by 2020 in a relatively short time. So let's start with logistical, right? Many states are just overwhelmed right now, um, trying to contain the, the spread of, of COVID-19. And many states are also facing staggering budget uh, losses of uh, budget revenues. Um, Governor Hogan in Maryland, um, Bob Hogan, for example, estimated the state would probably lose 20 to 30 percent of its budget revenues. And so there are those difficulties. Now, of course, Congress could help pay for some of these if it wanted to do that. And I think um, this, to some extent, is where partisan politics come in, comes into play. There's a strong sense that, uh, and I say this as an observer, not as a partisan, so 
there's a strong sense among both Democrats and Republicans that mail-in mail -in balloting benefits Democrats. And that makes sense, right? Democrats uh, tend to have a more, uh, at least to some extent, lower income constituency, not completely. Um, and, and the barriers on low income people are higher for voting already. And so when you lower the barriers, it, it tends to help um, people that tend to, but not always vote for Democrats. And so not surprisingly, Democrats favor mail-in balloting far more than Republicans do. And we saw that happen. We saw this play out in Wisconsin over the past absolutely. couple of days, right? Um, there's a, a bunch of bills floating around right now in Congress. Um, for example, there's a bill by Amy Klobuchar, um, Senator from uh, Minnesota and Ron, Ron Wyden from Oregon, that would mandate that states um, provide voters with so-called no excuse necessary uh, absentee ballots um, and or printable ballots, the, the latter of which are reserved exclusively right now for overseas and military voters. Um, the bill authorizes Congress to pay for the cost, states for the cost of implementing it. So there, there are a couple of bills in place. I looked at that legislation so far, it has 24 co-sponsors, all of whom are Democrats, Democrats. not surprisingly. Well, again, for the reason And that's a signal to me that this is not going to go anywhere, at least not now, and at least not in its current form. Well, this may then raise the question of, we have seen in the primaries, the states and to some extent the parties control the rules for voting. I was, as you know, I was a government major in my, in my college. You think I would know the answer to this, but I don't. Who controls the rules and access to uh, the ballot box in the national election, in the presidential election? Are those rules still set by states or is it it's set by the United States government? It's a mix. So campaign finance laws, for example, are for national elect for federal elections are all set at the national level by Congress. Um, but state voting rules are 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 set by states um, for the most part. Um, there's it's a mix, though, right? Because there are various constitutional amendments saying what states can't do, right, in terms of voting requirements. Um, and so it's it's a real mix of both state law, and by state law, I mean, are we gonna have early ballot uh, voting? Um, are we gonna have a week earlier than the election to allow people to come um, to the voting booth? Are we gonna have mail-in balloting? Those questions are state questions. Um, questions about who has the right to vote and preventing discrimination at, at the state level. Um, have been federal questions and campaign finance as well. Could the federal government, if it wanted to, come in and preempt the field and say, in light of the circumstances, uh, unusual as they are this year, we're going to impose a uniform set of rules on the way in which the, this election takes place? Sure. I mean, Congress can do anything. I mean, it has broad powers. Now, that probably wouldn't happen <laughs> because there's a lot of opposition to it. And there's in the a Senate. divided house in the Senate, and yes, yeah, and and it and it would be, you know, we have a more conservative court right now that would very likely consider that an overreach of congressional power that 
Congress should not be exercising. This is something like, for example, under the Warren court, that might have happened, but not now. And here's an example of this. And I'm not sure that people know this. Um, part of the Wisconsin uh, law, and, ex and, and that was a push to, uh, by, the, by a lower federal court, I think, to expand, and I don't know exactly the details on this, to expand the postmark date for um, absentee, write-in, for absentee ballots past the election day. I believe a federal court upheld that and the Supreme Court turned it down. Just the other and day. Said that we ought not, to, federal courts ought not to be in the business of changing election laws so close um, to election day. And so there's an incredible amount of conflict in this area. Well, and of course, let me say one last thing on that too, Bob. Um, partly because of the court's decision in Shelby County versus uh, Holden in 2013, where the, where the court gutted Section 4B of the Voting Rights Act, the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in 2006, states have had more latitude now on the extent to which they can pass things like voter ID laws. And the right, because they don't, these states don't need federal preclearance anymore as they used to need. And it is interesting. I have not read the Supreme Court's decision, but obviously it didn't seem to um, take cognizance of the fact that this was an unusual moment in time. And it applied its prior precedent somewhat um, automatically rather than, I don't mean this as a criticism, as much as I do as an observation, rather than really diving into the uh, sure. unusual moment and whether that might justify a different way of looking at the precedent that was established. Again, not as a criticism, really just more as yeah, an observation. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that you and I have spent time in my um, short time on this campus talking about is the regrettable rise of polarization in all aspects of American life, but particularly in American political life. Uh, it has often been said that nothing like a good crisis to find common ground. Um, do you see any signs that this crisis is beginning to um, create the possibility of more common ground, particularly in Washington? Um, and if you're not seeing it now, do you see the possibility from it that it is coming down the road? I want to see it. <laughs> but I, I don't, actually. Um, at least... Maybe at the community and you know state and local level, we can we'll see more unity as communities kind of rally around and gather around each other to help people. But I, I have to say, I think at the national level in particular, I think the country will remain fairly divided, and I think that for several reasons. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this this year and have reading been reading a lot about it, and so here's here's the way I'm thinking about this. So most people just don't pay that much attention to politics, right? They, and you and I are fascinated by this and we could talk about it endlessly and we want everyone to share our passion, but they don't, right? They're busy. They have a multitude of different interests and there's a, there are a lot of things more than ever, in fact, now competing for their attention, right? And the result is that people rely on cognitive shortcuts, Right. In particular, now, their, their political and social identities in, in interpreting politics and, and, in, and in making their vote choices as well. In the last two decades, we've seen 
an increase in, in the effect of party identification. In other words, party, the attachment one has to a party. And it's, it's become almost inseparable from someone's social identity um, now. And, and that's loomed large um, as a lens through which people interpret and absorb political events right now. And, and key to this, this way of thinking about it, is that a lot of people now surround themselves with friends and inhabit media echo chambers that reinforce their, their existing political and partisan beliefs. And so here's a great example. And Pew has done, Pew um, Center for People in the Press has done some great survey work on this. And I love Pew because they, they put their data online for number crunchers like me to download and then use in my classes and things. So they put a survey in the field at the end of March asking respondents how much confidence they had in President Trump President Trump's handling of, of the crisis. And, and actually, you know, the results are really instructive. Among Republican respondents, 90% said they were somewhat or very confident in the president's ability to handle the crisis. In contrast, among Democratic respondents, that number was 13%. Hmm. 68% of Democrats said they had no confidence at all. At 38% independents, which there are fewer now, of, over somewhere in between, they were looking a bit more like Democrats. So, so people are, are looking even at this event. It's the same event for everybody. We're looking at it through a partisan lens. And reinforcing all of this is that there's a presidential campaign going on right now. And campaigns are inherently divisive. Right. The aim for each side in any campaign is to distinguish themselves from the other side. And so that's going to reinforce, I think, this divide. And you're going to see it pop up on voting, on mail in balloting and, and so on. So, you know, that one of my themes has been um, figuring out how we can reinforce this college's orientation towards creating people who are engaged in the world, who build bridges, um, build coalitions to reach across difference effectively. All of these impulses are pushing in different directions. By the way, it's not quite the same as saying we want to graduate centrists. No, um, not right? at all. That, that's not the proposition. Rather, the proposition is we want to um, graduate people with um, capacious minds, the, yes. the ability to hear and listen, absorb, take in argument, uh, evaluate their own position uh, openly um, and with some honesty behind that. So all of these impulses that you've identified strike me as pushing against that direction. And so I guess my question is this, if a moment like this doesn't begin to cause those sinews to loosen a little bit, what will? That is, are we in this, in this trend of hyperpolarization indefinitely in your view? No, I think, I think, and I'm going to, I'm going to be optimistic here, but I'm also in, in being optimistic, attribute our, a role to ourselves. I think we can maybe grow out of it. And by grow out of it, I mean, we demonstrate for students how problematic this is. And we can say to students, and I've been trying to think about how to say this, and it, and it sort of is consistent with what we're saying, we don't need to graduate centrists. Is there something called a, a kind of good partisanship? And I think there is, right? 
I think a good partisan is someone who stands for principle or for something publicly, but to recognize that he or she does not see the whole of things and to be intensely curious about those things you don't see it. You know? I, so we I like I like that. I would add one other thing. And to recognize that particularly in the world of governance, there is a responsibility to govern the polity as a whole. Um, and it's not just a winner-take-all system. And that sometime compromise, which right now in Washington seems unpopular, um, has a value because it broadens legitimacy across the entire political spectrum. And we all have a stake in a government that is understood to be legitimate. That's my own personal view. I love that. For, for, for whatever it's worth. Um, so you probably occasionally ask your students to uh, engage in acts of conjecture. So I will ask you to do so as well. Um, how do you see the virus and the economic social dislocation that we have experienced? What do you see its impact being on the general election in the fall? And you can answer that either substantively in outcomes or process-based. What? However you imagine it. Well, it's a, it's the big question, right? And um, it's one of the big questions. And I'm gonna I'm gonna preface my answer with a caveat that there's so much uncertainty right now. Um, but I will say this, and again, given that given that people absorb political information now through a highly partisan lens and that campaigns are designed to reinforce and activate that partisanship, remind voters of it, I think this could be another close election. I don't think it's like 1932, where you know, voters deserted Hoover in droves and went to FDR, because we, this is not the same kind of political and media environment um, then as it is now. Um, it could even be a replay of 2016, where Democrats win the popular vote, but Trump wins the Electoral College vote. We don't know. I think, you know, it's it's really difficult to move voters out of their political silos. And, it, and there are independents, of course, but it's a shrinking number. And, and they tend to be closet independent, closet partisans who, who typically vote one way most of the time, but they call themselves independents. You know, campaigns can sometimes move the needle, right? And, and elections are one at the margins. I mean, I think about this, right? A shift of about 70,000 voters in, in, in uh, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin would have, picked, would have put Clinton in the White House in 2016. So it's possible <clears throat> that events combined with an effective Democratic uh, campaign would give Democrats a victory uh, in 2020. But it's so uncertain right now. And, and I want to stress that uncertainty in a couple of ways. I think, you know, we're really in uncharted territory, at least right now, politically speaking, right? And there are, I counted, 209 days to go before the election, hmm. right? Things are fluid. In fact, right, as we were planning this conversation, Bernie Sanders completely changed the dynamics by dropping out of the race. So. I'm wondering what will be different when we stop talking and we go check the news again, right? Like what sure. other, <laughs> and so I think, um, 
you know, a lot can happen in, in, in 209 days. And so I'm, um, I'm, I'm hesitant to make any uh, sweeping predictions. I've certainly gotten in trouble for that in the past, but I will, but I will say that I, I think this is, it, it really depends on how long this goes and, and how much continue, people continue to kind of look at the event and the response to it and the economic fallout through a fairly intensely partisan lens. So let me just pull on one little string on that, uh, and that is that, um, geez, why am I forgetting uh, which of the politicians said it's the economy stupid? Um, Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton. So yeah. um, the economy is not in very good shape at the moment. Uh, no. In ordinary times, wouldn't that, um, and maybe this is the point you were making, in ordinary times, that would augur poorly for the incumbents. Yeah, absolutely. In most times, and this is the big, this is what you're kind of, you're kind of nailing here the $64 million question, Bob. Like, again, right, in, in 1932, there was 24% unemployment, right? Incumbents don't are not reelected when there's 24% unemployment. And typically, this would be a death sentence. So it depends on, on, on how people interpret or look at this economic news. If they hold the president responsible for it, Including partisans, sure, that could that could undercut his reelection chances. If he is able to say, "Look, we were in good shape before this," and deflect blame on this, and you know, politicians are very good at deflecting blame. And if he's successful to do that to an audience that's already willing, it's unclear. That that that's fair. Um, and so, let me ask you one final question, Bruce, and that is: the American political system has. Um, long been built on federalism uh, as an organizing principle. That is uh, the shared responsibility of governance between the federal government and the states and power has shifted over time much more federally than in, in, in states, but states still have substantial rights. We talked a little bit about that in the organization of the yeah. election. How do you observe the phenomenon of federalism playing out um, as, our, as you interpret the response of the country to this pandemic? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important thing to to think about here. And in general, right, federalism. We have a big country, and it's it's diverse socioeconomically and in terms geographically and all, across so many variables. And I think, in general, right, federalism can offer real benefits in allowing states to set, in this case, policy responses that meet their needs. Right, and so, for example, like in the current crisis. You can make a good argument, right, that, that Wyoming's closures can perhaps be a bit different than, you know, and less restrictive than, say, closures in more urban and densely populated areas. So I think federalism serves us in, in, in that, you know, states can exercise policy responses that are tailored to their needs. And, I, and I'm going to say also on this, a lot of governors from both parties have really stepped up as superb leaders. And I'm thinking here of a bunch of people, Hogan in Maryland, who's a Republican, Gavin Newsom in California, uh, DeWine in Ohio, and Cuomo in, in, in New York. And it's made me lament the fact that we haven't seen a lot of presidential candidates who are governors uh, hmm. in recent years, right? We had John Kasich there, but he went nowhere. And, um, and not that governors are always perfect presidents, but governors run programs. They balance budgets. They got to make stuff work. 
And uh, they're really on the firing line right here. And so it's, it's, it's been instructive to see them step up. But I also want to qualify that, right? Even with effective state governments and even with effective governors, we need an effective national government coordinating state responses and engaging and coordinating private industry, for example, to get medical supplies in production. And this is the thing, right? Markets don't magically work by themselves to produce these things. We have to, the national government can and should be coordinating and incentivizing these efforts. And, you know, pandemics don't respect state boundaries either, right? And so, you know, which also, of course, makes a national response um, necessary to this. So while I appreciate federalism and I appreciate these, these remarkable efforts um, by, by some of the governors, um, we, we need to continue to, to think about how to get a robust, you know, national response on this. I keep thinking that Alexander Hamilton would be saying, let's go, let's move, let's move along here. Let's use everything we can to break this virus. Um, that is that is well said and a good stopping point for this. Bruce, as you said, you and I could talk about this for hours. I'm not sure our audience wants to listen to us talk about this for hours. So let me conclude with an enormous thank you for uh, helping illuminate for us some of the important political and governmental issues associated with this pandemic. And of course, thanking you for all that you're doing for our students as they, we, all of us, adjust to um, new ways of learning and living. So thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Bob. And thanks for having me. Thank you for all you're doing for the college right now and, and for all of the employees. I'm uh, thinking about people in the registrar's office in IT. This is a good place. It surely is. Let me conclude with a slice of life from Gettysburg College. Just yesterday, the college marked Founders Day, the 188th anniversary of the establishment of what was originally known as Pennsylvania College. The college's founder, Samuel Smucker, believed that education was a vital social good, and as a noted abolitionist, he was also guided by principles and values rooted in looking out for some of society's most vulnerable members. Nearly two centuries later, we continue to see Smucker's values realized through the thousands of actions by Gettysburgians near and far. Recently, a 2018 Gettysburg College graduate was in the news for doing what members of our community do so well, seeing a problem and jumping in to fix it. After graduating from the college with a major in biology, Julia Palmucci is now a graduate student at Duke studying microbiology. She read a Twitter thread about an over 80 couple anxious to get groceries given the coronavirus and saw an opportunity to help. She's now created a team of friends that is reaching out to populations at particular risk from COVID-19 and is offering to help get their groceries or run other essential errands. I can only imagine the huge burden that has lifted from scores of Durham, North Carolina residents. Bravo, Julia. You have modeled what it means to be a true Gettysburgian. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation and want to be notified of future episodes, please subscribe to Conversations Beneath the Cupola by visiting gettysburg.edu or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a topic or suggestion for a future podcast, please email news at gettysburg.edu. Thank you, and until next time.